This is Software Defined Survival, where we talk to AVIT professionals and software developers to find out how to leverage software to reinvent ourselves and the way we do business. We listen to their stories and ask for advice and tactics on how to survive and thrive in a software-defined world. Today on Software Defined Survival. The only thing you know about the yacht is it will change. You're literally going to be on the other side of the world when you have the biggest problem and the most uh, urgent need for assistance. And on their projects, we're using Crestron hardware for all the endpoint controls. And we have a really simplified program on the Crestron processors to basically make them into a relay box for us. <laughs> That's an expensive relay box. And obviously, technology between the 80s and the 2000s was a big, big change. A lot of things happened. And it felt like they had really reinvented the, the control system and the approach to things. I mean, this is ancient technology. I mean, why are we doing it this way still? Hey, Patrick Murray here. I just wanted to take a quick minute to apologize for the audio quality on today's show. But I still think it's worth listening to. That's why I'm publishing it. Because today's guest gives us some really interesting insight on what it's like to work on mega yachts, which is a segment of the AV industry that if you're not in it, you may not be aware that it exists at all. And they have some really interesting challenges that they need to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And Eric came up with some interesting ways of solving them. So again, I know there's a lot of audio guys out there and this may hurt your ears a little bit, but it might just be worth it to have a listen. So I promise I'll do better next time. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Software Defined Survival. My name is Patrick Murray. Today's guest has spent most of his career working on some of the largest mega yachts in the world. He has also spent some time working as a software developer for a data analytics company called Tipco Spotfire. And I'm guessing that while he was working as an ETO, he had some ideas and eventually decided to execute on them and develop Pledge. Pledge is a control system for entertainment and comfort systems like lighting, shades, and heat. For those of you who aren't familiar with the marine uh, part of AV, there's a whole sector of AV where they work just on these mega yachts. And the person who kind of lives on the boat and takes care of all the AV equipment and everything else that's electronic, his job is an ETO. He's an electronic technologies officer. So just to give you a little background there, that's what we're talking about when we say ETO. Now, if you go to Pledge's website, it looks like a simple lighting system with an app, but I know that speaking from some of my contacts, with some of my contacts in the yachting industry, that it is so much more than that. And that's why I wanted to have on today, Eric Kalissendorf. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you so much, Patrick. Is there anything about that introduction that you'd like to correct or expand upon? I guess I should do a little bit of expansion. I mean, basically, we started in this almost 10 years ago now, or the company, I should say. I started in the industry a long time before that. And basically, we all had a goal to go into the more residential and normal housing at some point. But basically, we're taking a long time for the normal houses to be ready. And we finally, a few years ago, find an opening in the normal market, which is this lighting system, which we now marketing on our homepage. So that's the reason for that kind of shift in our marketing effort. Excellent. So we'll, we'll get to that more later on. Uh, I want to go back to the beginning, though, just to kind of really get a feel for your background. Yeah, please. How did you, how did you get your first job as an ETO? Uh, 
it's kind of a long story, but I'm happy to tell you. So basically everything started many years ago. I think it was 2002, something like that. Basically, I was working as a computer specialist within the armed forces in Sweden. And I decided that I wanted to travel the world. So I set off, went down to the Mediterranean and stayed there for the summer. And then at the end of the summer, I thought, well, I need to get around the world. I can't just stay in Europe. So and I thought anyone can do a flight trip around the world. It's, yeah, it's no, no challenge in that. So I kind of decided I wanted to do a surface trip. So basically land or sea, those are the two options I put myself to. And I thought, well, oceans, big container ships, yeah, they should be fairly easy to travel around the world on, that, on those. But that, that wasn't really the case, I realized, when I was down in the Mediterranean. So one thing led to another, and by the end of the summer, I uh, had come down to Gibraltar. And I thought Gibraltar must be the perfect spot to exit Europe and get over the Atlantic and see the rest of the world. But unfortunately, Gibraltar, as all of you that has been there, is, is a perfect spot for small uh, holiday cruisers and stuff. But the bigger yachts basically go in for bunkers and leave again. So it's very hard to really get in contact with anyone. So They just stop to kind of... Uh fill up on gas and then keep moving along, right? Yeah, and they definitely don't have time to pick up anyone or to chat to dock walkers, as they're called. So basically when I came down there, I walked around the little rock and quite surprised that this, this was more or less a dead end. So the other option was basically to go back all the way to Italy and take a short trip over to Egypt and the Africa and basically go that way around the globe instead. So I was a little bit let down by this revelation that I was on the wrong side of Europe and the Mediterranean. So based on my way back from uh, uh, the rock, I stumbled across a Norwegian that I started to talk to. And yeah, he lived close to another port. And one thing led to another. And I started to get some day working in that port. And the funny thing with this port, it was, it was like smaller yachts, like 30 meters maximum. And, but one of these bigger ones that was like 30, 40 meters was a Swedish flagged yacht. And I basically, as soon as I saw that yacht, I, I said to myself, this yacht I'm going to be working on. So I basically just walked up to the dock or to the gangway and uh, talked to the owner and pres presented myself. And he kind of was wondering, do I really know you? Or I said, not yet. And we had a quick chat and one thing led to another. And I worked there for a month or so. And during that time, I, I said, had some posters up in Gibraltar and uh, yeah, was looking for some other work to do the crossing. And eventually, after some time, I got a call from uh, the manager for a big yacht. At the time, I didn't know what yacht it was. He just said it was one of the big, big, bigger ones. And they just sold it and needed some new crew to do a delivery up to Germany. And I kind of thought, well, Germany is kind of on the wrong way. I'm not. On my way around the world, not back up to the northern part, which obviously I'm from Sweden, so it's kind of halfway back home. <laughs> but I thought, well, it might be my chance to get on the big yachts and uh, get some real experience, and hopefully that can help me do the rest of the travel later on. So I, I wasn't really in a big hurry. I mean, this was kind of my life travel, and I really want to see the world and get as much experience as possible. So I said, well, let's, let, let's do this. So I had a meeting, and... Uh, Got offered the position, and that position was basically as a deckhand. And for the guys who doesn't know, I guess you can say deckhand is kind of a, we'll say a janitor for the yacht. 
basically taking care of cleaning the decks, uh, taking care of the small boats and all the rest of it. Yeah, cleaning from morning till night. That, that sums it up. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much exactly what you do. And yeah, so I, I got on the yacht and for everyone who's interested, this was Le Grand Bleu, which is another very famous yacht, I would say. It's one of the really big ex- expedition yachts and yeah, I think it's very well known if you in the industry and it's very easy to recognize because it has two giant yachts on its aft deck. So one 68 feet sailing yacht and uh, roughly the same size uh, Sunseeker motor yacht as well on deck. So there's basically tenders for this yacht, which, yeah, especially in Sweden, I mean, any yacht of that size is a huge yacht and that's a tender. So it's just give you a bit of a scale. Yeah, it's amazing some of the things that that they do when they're building these things. So I love that story. And whenever I meet anybody who works on boats, I I always ask them how they got their first job because it's always something similar. Well, I walked up to a boat and asked (laughs) for the job. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. And uh, and then you just work your butt off, and um, if if you can do what you say you could do, eventually you'll uh, get in some kind of a position where, yeah, where you're in charge of more than keeping things clean. And um, I've heard that similar story many times in the yachting industry, and I always get a kick out of hearing it. And um, I like the way you decided I want to travel the world, but you want to work doing it. How do I get there while? Um, maybe building some kind of career. I don't know if that was your intention, but uh, well, I, I find that kind of interesting too. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing there is my, my idea was quite opposite to be honest. I mean, yeah, I wanted to travel the world, but I didn't want to build a career. I kind of knew I was always getting back to computer science and technology at some point in my life. But now I want to okay. do something different. I wanted to travel and kind of focus on that and not focus on my career. So that's the reason I was quite happy to do day, day working in the... Uh, work as a normal crew member. But basically, quite soon after I got onto Le Grand Bleu, basically, they offered me the radio officer position, which back then was the same as DTO is today. Because back right. then, you didn't have a name for DTO. There was no DTO. No, there was before, though. Yeah. got a, his own position and his own name. But basically, sure. what I said was, well, <laughs> thank you so much for the offer. I mean, uh, I'm happy to help out a little bit, but I'm really not here to do that. I'm, I'd rather be on deck and... Yeah, learn something else and just uh, do this as a break from my normal experience. But one thing led to another, and after a couple of months, I realized that, well, polishing stainless and varnishing and all of that is not really what I want to do the rest of my life. And I kind of like being out in the sea, so I might as well do this to a career. So I said, all right. So, so you didn't plan on on getting into technology. It was really just to uh, kind of take a break from work, and you certainly found some mindless work <laughs> to take care of. <laughs> but um, but you kind of fell in love with being on the boats and found the way to uh, use your technology skills on there. Okay. Um, what is so? What is a typical day like for an ETO? Uh, I would say basically the morning routines is basically make sure everything still works after the night. And depending on what kind of crew and uh, owners you have, I mean, quite often you're the, the last person to go to sleep because, yeah, the, the guests quite often have parties and a big uh, setup with bands or um, watching some specific movies. Or one example is uh, an owner who was really into his football. And basically, mm-hmm. we were in the, uh, Alaska this time. And whoever, if you ever been up to Alaska, it's first of all, it's very, very well up north. It's, up than Sweden, where I'm coming from. 
And the other thing is they have a lot of fjords and mountains and stuff. And if you try to watch TV, there's two things to bear in mind. First of all, all the satellites are at the equator, which means the further north you are, the lower down on the horizon you will have the satellites. And that kind of becomes a problem when you have all these fjords and stuff in the way as well, because obviously mountains are quite high. So that was the first kind of issue. Yeah, you need to kind of steam out from the mountains to be able to receive any signal at all. And the other thing was basically this uh, owner had a really big game coming up and he really wanted to watch this. And Alaska isn't the biggest uh, soccer fans as such. So there was no TV station that was even broadcasting this locally for us. Me and my colleague came up with the idea that, well, UBC is having the rights for this in, back in Europe, and I'm sure they're happy to help out. So we, we did give them a call and talked to them and said, well, yeah, we should be able to give you a private downlink of this uh, programming. Uh, we are set to loop through a couple of satellites, and you should be able to get it to something you can receive. And we thought, well, that sounds brilliant, but obviously there was a cost involved with this, and yeah. For the owner, it wasn't that much, but from our perspective, he kind of had to have his permission, and I think it was like 10 grand, something like that, US. So we asked the owner, is this okay if we pursue this and see if this is going to be possible? And basically, from that day until the week later when the actual game was on, it was the only thing the guests were talking about. So that was like a huge uh, uh, challenge for us and really making sure that we could watch the game as well. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing. Um, that things like that are possible, but, um, yeah, obviously money can solve a lot of problems if, uh, you have it. So what were some of the things that, um, kind of pushed you towards developing a new control system? Yes. So that thing, um, the normal challenges when you're on board, I would say is the owners, it's one thing that they don't understand and for good reason, I would say, it's to take a note. I mean, they, they have the money to do whatever they want, and no, it's not. It's never a good answer. Sure, it is not an answer. <laughs> no, you need to find a solution for whatever they want, one way or another. And quite often, they come with these new gaming consoles, they come with some new equipment that they want to hook up to their TV, and obviously, they have this fancy control system, which touch panels and everything. And I mean, this was way, way before the iPhone was even a prototype. So, I mean, right. touchscreen was something quite... Uh, unheard of and uh, I haven't really seen touchscreen myself before I got on the yachts. I mean, you've seen them uh, in, online and in some magazines, but you never really touched them before this. When I got this request about plugging up a new game console or something else, the answer will always become, yeah, I can, I can do it, but you have to now use this touch panel to start a TV, then you have to take this old remote to change the input on your receiver, and then you have to take this third remote to do some other crazy stuff. And the, the owner is just looking at you and say, but I paid all this money. Why does it have to be this complicated? Yeah. And I mean, as I said, I have a computer background myself and I wasn't really impressed with what I saw myself. And I thought, well, this is not really the 20th, 21st century. I mean, this is ancient technology. I mean, why are we doing it this way still? I mean, you obviously know Crestron and AMX and the guys as well. I mean, and they started, in, I think it was like 1980 or something like that. They started to really make a name for themselves. And obviously technology is between the 80s and the 2000s was a big, big change. A lot of things happened. And it felt like they had really reinvented the, the control system and their approach to things. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, to follow up on that. You're, you're right. The paradigm has not changed. 
And I think the example that you gave where somebody comes with a new source and just wants to, you know, it's a typical thing. I, the Xbox is new. I want to play with it. I bring it in. Why can't I just plug it in and use it? And um, I think that's a very simple example, but you face much more complicated things when you're working on a boat. For example, at this time of year, um, it's it's pre-season in the Mediterranean and over the winter, many vessels will be in the Caribbean and when they get back to the Mediterranean, they'll be able to pick up different satellites. So there'll be times where you'll have to replace 20, 30, sometimes even 50 satellite receivers. And of course, you'll have to adjust all of the programming with that. And if those are IR drivers are kind of hard-coded, which is normally how it is, then that could be a pretty big job that needs to be done at least twice a year. And anybody looking at this, you know, people are so busy, it's it's hard to step back sometimes and say, I know there's a better way to do this. Why aren't we, you know, making this thing dynamic? Why, why can't it just switch? I'm in Europe, I'm here, I'm there. Why can't I just have uh, throw an IR file onto a, a server somewhere and have the control system read that out? instead of having to physically go in and recompile and and reinstall everything. So you're right, there's the paradigm. It really comes from conference rooms, as far as I could tell, where you build it once, you put it in, and then maybe there'll be some maintenance in a few years, but typically they're left alone. So these systems really are not as flexible as they could be. So I, I feel your pain. Yeah. And, and the other thing I would say as well is if you have a conference room or a residence as well, I mean, they are not uh, moving. They are stationary at one position, and yes, basically means, move. Yeah, and that basically means that the installer you have chosen is normally down the road a few blocks or so. So if you have a problem, you call them, and they're going to be there in an hour or so. Right. With a yacht on the other side, I mean, you're literally going to be on this other side of the world when you have the biggest problem and the most uh, urgent need for assistance. And, you can plan on that. Yes. Yeah. And I know myself, I mean, sometimes we had to get the programmers out and it could take two weeks to get someone on board. <laughs> yeah, lots of sky miles. Yeah, and then the problem is by the time you get the programmers on board, the uh, guest has already left and the request they had is not that, it's not of any interest anymore. So it's, yeah, it's very difficult situation and much high demands on the, the, the environment and a typical installation, I would say. Right. So we've worked on some of the, the same boats. We, we've never met each other personally. This is the first time we're talking. And uh, I know that some of those projects, you, you could see how these programs evolve. So a yacht will typically get built and then it'll have a refit every two or three or five years. And maybe the programming will be done from scratch. But more often than not, you'll take the old programming and build on top of it. And after a few years, these programs turn into like these Frankenstein <laughs> objects. They really do. And uh, I think you know some of the code that I'm talking about. And uh, it's easy to blame the programmer, right? But when there are 10 or 20 programmers that were involved over all of that time, it's, um, it's really hard to blame anybody for that situation. And I wonder if we could benefit from adopting more uh, more modern software development techniques, like things like agile development and uh, and and backup um, paradigms, like using GitHub, for example, to store your code and even share it so other people could see it, and maybe you'd be more motivated to to write cleaner code. Do you have any thoughts on? Yeah, on that? I mean, basically, what, what all the things we mentioned is the reason we're why I started played and 
where we have our own control system stuff because we find it too limited. And we found the problem that we had with the, the existing system, first of all, name X, to name a few, was that they have brilliant systems, but they basically have black box PLC that you can do anything with. And it's really good if you want to do something very bespoke and very specific, but a lot of times you just want things to work. And you as a programmer, you kind of you get the task to get this work. Here's the spreadsheet with the functions we require and make those work. But when you finish with that, you have no time to go through it and make it really nice and uh, polished. Because as you know, and uh, I guess the audience might be uh, know as well, that the AV is the last thing to go into a refit or out. Because basically, before you can do the AV, you need to have the furniture, you need to have the walls, you need to have the ducting, you need to have everything else in place. And obviously, with a big project like a yacht, things do run over time, which means the one who has to catch up on the time is the last people, and that's normally the AVIC people. So they always uh, scramble for time to get things finished. My favorite part of the project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a good challenge. And uh, I mean, that's the reason for my traveling and a lot of other stuff. I mean, I like the challenge and I like to really do things that people don't think is possible a lot of times. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, you don't want to make your life harder than necessarily either. So it's like no. that balance. No, I, I really don't enjoy those those times because it generally, uh, many times, people will start come up, coming up with new ideas when you're trying to execute <laughs> on the old ideas. And it just turns into uh, an impossible situation way too much. So I, I'm always an advocate for planning more in the beginning and uh, and trying to avoid those crunch times because... With software, I mean, honestly, everything should be able to be tested off-site. Before you even see the boat, you should be able to test all of your code, get all of your user interfaces approved, um, and even get most of the equipment and test directly with that as well. And that avoids a lot of those things. But uh, for some reason, that that kind of planning, like you said, AV is always last, and, and the programming is even more of an afterthought. Yeah, and I, I mean, a lot of things happen with industry since... Uh, early 2000s. I mean, it is a lot better now, but the paradigm as such hasn't changed that much, unfortunately. There are some new players, I mean, obviously ourselves, but uh, Savant and Control 4 is also having a different approach to things. Unfortunately, those two are very, way too limited for the yachting industry, but at least they have a more finished product and it's easy to just implement. Right. So what are the things uh, that make um, the yacht industry special what what are some what are some requirements for control systems in, in the mega yachts that uh that that make control a little bit different i would say the two biggest ones is obviously plan for change i mean the only thing you know about a yacht is it, it will change with time i mean i want to will not be satisfied with five-year-old tvs down the line i mean they want to have the latest and greatest so there will be changes there's something you know and as, as you say yourself, an easy thing is the project you're running, working on. You got a specification, this is what should be installed. By the time you have the delivery, that has changed already. So it's, it's yeah. always evolving uh, platform, I would say. So that's, I would say it's the biggest one and the most important one. The second one is obviously it's a moving platform, which means you, you can't plan for being on site to do all the changes. You need something that can be managed by the crew or be managed remotely easily. 
Interesting. So let's shift gears and start talking about Pledge a little bit. Can you give me a really brief overview of, of what makes it different than than other types of control systems? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so basically, Pledge, when we started, the, the core idea was basically have something that uh, will manage itself and you don't need to program everything. So more like configuration and setting up than a pure programming point of view from the installation side of everything. So basically, we design a software that will take care of the program itself. And what that means is when you do an installation, you basically tell the, the blueprints to the system. So I have these kind of devices, Blu-rays, amplifiers, receivers, matrix switches, screens, projectors, and so on and so forth. You're basically telling them how they are interconnected. So this output from this receiver goes to this input on the TV. So basically the blueprint, you're just translating to the language of the system. And then the system itself will find out the right. In this room, I'm able to view all these different sources because I can find a path from the Blu-ray player through the matrix switcher, through the extender to your local receiver to the TV. So well, what you typically did in the, the Crestron way work, you have to manually say, all right, all these buttons should be available and all these sources are in this room. And then you go to the next room and say, well, this has the same kind of sources and you kind of duplicate it over and over again. Right. What we're doing instead is basically we're taking the blueprint and the system will find out, okay, this is what's actually physically possible to do in all, all rooms. And then instead of adding sources like you do in Crestron and AMX, you, we're basically removing sources and say, well, maybe in the kids' room, I don't want them to have access to the uh, owner's satellite box, for example. And then you remove it. So you're kind of reverting the method. So we start with a system that is capable of doing everything, and then we remove things you don't want to use. Interesting. So you've created a data model that can handle different types of uh, data points inside of a framework. Correct. And so, so you've got like your typical AV system. How do you handle when something comes out of left field with, I don't know, maybe an, a special audio processor or two or three di- displays or things like that? Yeah. So I would say that's one of the beauty with our system is basically when we designed it, we made it very generic. So the system, if you look on the software side of things, it doesn't even know what AV is. So it's completely AV independent, so to speak. It means you can release it for anything. So if it's one screen, two screens, 20 screens, or if you would use it for something completely different, it doesn't really matter. It's just some way of modeling the world to find the path through a maze, more or less. Could you say that again? Modeling the world to find? Yeah, to find the path from A to B. So basically, yeah. think, of it, think of a yeah a maze, I would say. You have a, an entrance point, you have an exit point. And somewhere through that maze, you can get to the exit. But how you get there, you don't really know until you try out all the different paths and so on. And what our system is doing is it's finding those paths for you automatically. That is very interesting. I like the way you describe that. Okay. So where does the system run? Uh, what kind of hardware do you need? Yeah, so that's the other thing. Basically, our focus was to make the, the brain of the system, so to speak. So we are a server-based control system and network-based, I should say, as well, on that topic. So what that means is basically we're installing a server on the on the yachts, and then we're using whatever hardware they want to use for actual control for the endpoints. So on a lot of yachts, I maybe should mention that we are partnered with the VBH, one of the big installers, who is using us on a lot of their products now. And on their products, we're using Crestron hardware for all the endpoint controls. And then we have a really 
simplified program on the Crescent processors to basically make them into a relay box for us. <laughs> That's an expensive relay box. Yeah, it is. But at the same time, uh, basically, since Crescent is a big name in this industry, a lot of clients want to have Crescent hardware. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with the hardware. It's just the programming that makes them very unreliable a lot of times. So we don't mind that. Interesting approach. So, um, and and does it matter what kind of server you use, or do you need something particular? Like, is it OS X? Is it Linux? No, we're completely hardware independent. So basically, this software itself is written in Java. Okay. So basically, you can translate it into any platform you want. And if somebody needs a device driver, would you would you uh, bring that into the pledge system? Would you write the driver yourself? Would a developer like myself have a way to integrate third-party products with Pledge, or would I need to use something like a, an external, a third-party control processor to to integrate something new? Yeah, so basically what we have currently is we have kind of two different layers. So we have the core Java systems, and then you can make the drivers in Java language. And that's what we do ourselves, or we used to do a lot of that. And then we have kind of this uh, meta language, which is the same as our configuration files. So basically in the configuration configuration files, you can make simple drivers and tell them with kind of IR codes and simple rules for serial and network communication as well. And that's what is mostly used for simple devices and even receivers and uh, surround receivers and stuff like that. So it's not just uh, one-way communication, it's supporting two ways as well. But it's not something you would use for like the Kaleidoscape or a very heavy media platform. Then you would have a dedicated driver, but for I would say 80-90% of the drivers we do now, we do it in this generic uh, uh, language, which is based on XML file, which has some rules onto it. Yeah, that's um, really a really interesting point. I want to take that apart a little. 80-90% to 90 of the devices don't really have that much um, logic that you need to write in a driver. You mentioned Kaleidoscape. Obviously, that's a media player. So you'll need to, um, if you want to get a movie list or something like that, you'll need to parse out a lot of data. And that's you'll definitely need some logic to do that. But that really is not most devices out there nowadays. Correct. It's actually an exception. Uh, they're, import, they're important pieces of the system. But um, most devices generally are relatively simple. It's send a command and receive a command. And that's about it. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I would say the biggest problem with the devices today is not the complexity of what they're doing. It's more the, the imperfections of how they do it. And what I mean with that is the typical example is like projectors and TVs and stuff like that, that you have a protocol that's supposed to do something, but it has some quirks to it. It doesn't respond to messages during the first 30 seconds of startup or it's, can't handle certain commands in certain states and stuff like that. So that, that I would say is the, the biggest issue with devices. It's not the complexity as such. It's just finding out how they work more in depth. Do you think someday we'll have a standard control protocol? I would love that, but I think that would take <laughs> quite some time. I mean, if you look at the home market now, which is something we're working on quite a lot now, I mean, you have Apple HomeKit, you have uh, Google Assistant, you have Amazon Alexa and all the others. So, uh, not even there is something that's looking like being a standard anytime soon. Nah, I don't. I don't think it'll ever happen. <laughs> I'd love it too. It would, you know. There's nothing special about your power on commands, but <laughs> no. And in that respect, I would say we've actually gone backwards in some respect because go back ten years, then everyone had an IR remote for everything, and you could use an IR to get some basic control for everything. 
now everything is moving to network, which obviously we love, but at the same time, there's no one way to do control for everything anymore. Yeah, so that always means a bit of uh, a bit of driver riding, a bit of human labor to, to get that thing under control. Yeah, and, it, and the bigger problem there, just to go into that, and that's, and I think the Atlas, unfortunately, the forerunner there is, when you go into network and more advanced control paradigm, which is something we like because you get better feedback and more robust communication. But the problem is quite often you get this uh, ecosystem that are locked as well. Like Apple doesn't want other people to control their stuff, which means they have encryption and other stuff which they don't share, which means even if you can see the traffic, you can't really do much with it. So that's a big step backwards, unfortunately, in some respects. Yeah, the way Apple handles security, on the one hand, I can understand it. They want to put security at the front, but uh, it is very frustrating for guys like us when um, when we want to control something and and uh, and our control might break because they push an update next week. That's uh, exactly not an ideal situation. So tell me about your customers. What kind of um, companies or or end users have the most success with uh, a pledge system? Yeah, so if you talk about the control system, basically uh, two and a half years ago, roughly now, we partnered with VBH. It's a big uh, custom installer in uh, the Netherlands. So they do all our yacht installations now. So obviously that, that is our sole client for the yachting industry as we speak right now. Okay, congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, VBH means Van Berger Hennehauen. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> They are, uh, yeah, it's a Dutch company that does a lot of integration work, perhaps one of the biggest systems integrators for AV in the yachting area. Um, I've done a lot of work with them myself in the past, and anybody who's in the yachting business in Europe definitely knows that name. So what does a typical project look like? Like, say I'm an integrator and I want to get involved with Pledge, I want to use it on a project. What what would be a, the first steps to get started and uh, maybe some of the steps at the end as well? Yes, so if you look at our installation, just what was involved in an installation. So basically, the way we do it is getting the blueprints of the physical installation, as, as I mentioned before. So what kind of equipment is this and how are they interconnected? Is there a particular format that you like to see for that? Not really. I mean, any kind of normal uh, schematics would do just fine. I mean, okay. the, the core here is basically to know which inputs and outputs are used on the different devices and as well what kind of brands and uh, device models they are. That's kind of the, the core information we need. Right. And then basically what you're doing is you're translating that into a configuration language, so the XML files I mentioned. And then you, you'll see, okay, what's in our database already and what's new devices that hasn't been entered already. And the new devices you make the device triggers for and the existing ones basically are ready to go as, as you speak. Okay. And then um, what about commissioning? then the integrator would take that programming on site or would you guys help remotely? How does how does that all work out? Yeah, normally the integrator would do all of that themselves and as well with the configuration, they can do a lot of that as well. Uh, and the okay. nice thing I would say is basically you can kind of do it in two stages. So the first stage is that you have the blueprint and you know how the system is supposed to work and what's supposed to be there. And as soon as you have that, then you can run the whole system in like a dummy mode, which means you will get the... UI on the uh, touch panels, you will see all the commands being sent and how it's supposed to operate. And you got a feel for, okay, is all the sources I expect in all the rooms, does it behave like I expect it to? And then when you are happy with the configuration, then you can very easily take it on site and start deploying it. So you kind of can do most of the 
heavy lifting before you even step on board, which is a big improvement when you talk about the timing and stuff, which you mentioned before. Absolutely. Is there any kind of monitoring built in or, or any kind of service level agreement type? Um, with our clients, I mean, currently we're just having one private client ourselves, the rest of it are heading over to eBay. But we basically have some service agreement and this mainly to provide software upgrades and as well being available if they need some changes and stuff like that during the seasons. But otherwise, I mean, it's just any server, yeah, you just can remote log into the server and see the logs and uh, see what's going on. So it's fairly easy to manage. Okay. So are you doing anything with uh, data, like collecting data and maybe a dashboard to see how the rooms are being utilized or anything like that? Uh, not at the moment, but there's things we could expand on if, if required. But yeah, we haven't really seen the need for that as, as we go. Right. And that'll lead me right into the next question. Um, are there any? Do you have any interesting plans for the future that you'd care to share with us? I mean, to, to be honest, I mean the big focus now has been on the residential market, which has really blown blown our minds. I mean, we started, as I said, about two years ago, and last year was the first real year on the market, and the interest in the market adoption has just been over any kind of expectation we had. So it's been. Really, really, really exciting. And that's basically been changing our focus quite a lot this last year and the coming years as well, I'm sure. What well, what kind of customers do you have in, in residential? Is it is it end users or electricians, integrators? And we're basically selling to the uh, wholesalers, to the electricians. So they are our direct customers. But obviously, the, the people that's using it is you and me and basically anyone. So it's I think now in Sweden, we have uh, 60,000 in products installed in different houses from the northern tip to the southern border. So we're basically all over Sweden now and in every single uh, town, more or less. So it's very, very, very quick ad- adoption here in Sweden. So we're quite excited about that and looking forward to expanding into other parts of Europe as well. Very nice. Um, <laughs> if you could uh, put your finger on any one thing or one or two things, why do you think there was such rapid adoption? Yeah, the, I would say it's fairly simple. Uh, basically what we're doing is a smart dimmer, so a smart lighting system in some respect. And what we do different from other people is basically with a lot of knowledge from user experience and uh, how you make something as easy to use and easy to install to something that's been made extremely uh, uh, cost-efficient as well. So or about 30% more than a typical dumb dimmer, you get in this smart dimmer with all of its other benefits. So for electricians, a lot of them say, well, we never install anything else. If I go to an uh, old lady or a young kid, I don't care if they are technology savvy or interested in technology, I'm always giving them this dimmer because it's the best dimmer and it's make my job easier and faster. So that's, I would say, is one of the key reasons for the big adoption. It's just a really good product. It solves problems for people here and now. It solves the problem by being easy mm-hmm. to use and install. Yeah, and, and of course, cost is always a factor. If you uh, would, you have any advice for someone that has some new ideas and is thinking about turning it into a product, whether it's an application, a piece of software, maybe a small hardware product? Do you have any ideas or advice for them on? on what their first step should be to uh, to bringing that into the world? I mean, the, the long advice, I mean, not long in the, the advice itself, but what it means is 
any kind of endeavor like this, you really need to believe your product and believe in what you're doing and really have the persuasion to stick with it because it will take you time. It will be hard times and it will be fun times, but it will be a roller coaster in a lot of respects. So you have to really be willing to put in the efforts and uh, stick with your idea. All right, put on some body armor. First, believe in what you're doing, be ready, and then put on your body armor and be ready to persevere and go through some tough times first. Yeah, and make sure you have your partner and uh, your close family and everyone to support you as well, because obviously one way or another they will be involved if it's just to give you the time that you need to work on it or to support in other ways. So you need to have that uh, framework around you, I think, to be able to really put the efforts required Absolutely. Absolutely. Having a a good support team is absolutely critical. It's not talked about very much either in, um, in the tech world at all. But, um, yeah, if, if the people you, you live with and see every day aren't on the same page as you, then it's going to make things that much more difficult. So Eric, if, uh, somebody would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Yeah. The best thing is to email us on our normal email. So it's info at play.com. This goes to me and my colleagues, so someone will definitely get back to you if you're using that. Otherwise, you have our homepage as well, play.com. So it's papalimaecojuliatdelta.com. Excellent. Eric, thank you very much for being on the show. This was a great talk. Oh, thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to hear more from you. Thanks. Take care. Yes, bye-bye. Hey, Patrick here again. Just one more thing before we wrap things up. If you're an AV programmer or if you have one on staff and you're ready to make the switch to software-defined AV, now is the time to start learning. Go to learnavprogramming.com and wherever you see an opt-in box, go ahead and put in your email address and I'll send you some emails with some really useful information so you could get started learning right now. We also have paid courses at LearnAVProgramming.com that show you step-by-step how to use these new programming languages and exactly how they apply to AV systems. So if you're at least remotely interested in any of this, go ahead, go to LearnAVProgramming.com, check out the free stuff, enroll in one of the courses, and get started today. Set aside a little time each week, and before you know it, you just might make your own control system like Eric did. All right, see you next week. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. For transcripts and show notes, go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com.